One of my favorite things to do is to go to the movies. I love watching a picture unfold on the big screen with interesting characters, uh, plot lines that tell the story of humanity and love. It's one of the things that I've missed most during our current situation. One of my favorite parts, though, of going to the movies is not actually just the movie itself, but the previews. I love seeing the previews. I love getting a picture of what is to come. So much so that if I'm running late for a film, I will seriously consider going to the next showing if I'm going to miss the previews. Even when I take my kids to a movie, to go see a kid-themed movie, I start to get anxious if we're running late and we're going to miss the previews, knowing full well that the previews we are about to see are going to be a bunch of trailers for kids' movies. If we get to the movies five minutes before showtime and there's a long line at the concession stand, it's sorry, Levi and Luke, no popcorn, no soda, we got to get in for the previews. But a preview gives us a picture of what is to come, something to get excited about. And I especially love those previews when you know there's going to be a new major motion picture, like something in the Star Wars franchise, or perhaps a new movie by one of my favorite directors. I get excited to know what is in store for the future. And in our text this morning, we get a preview, a window into heaven, something that is to come, something to get excited about. Perhaps you've had a conversation around the question, if you could go back to any place in Scripture and witness it, what would it be? If you could get in a time machine and go back into the days of Scripture, what event would you go to? And for me, I think it is this one. I think it is the transfiguration. There's an incredible picture here that we'll talk about in a little bit that I just, I would love to witness this event in person. This also brings up another question. Why are we talking about the transfiguration today? Well, on August 6th was the, the church's celebration of the Feast of the Transfiguration. Uh, it started on August 6th because that is when the Church of the Transfiguration was dedicated on Mount Tabor, thought to be one of the possible locations of the actual event itself, according to church tradition. But it's also an appropriate break in our series in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter, we've talked much about suffering, and the transfiguration was one of those events that gave Peter the preview he needed to endure the suffering that he would. This is one of the events that shaped his entire life, and it should shape our lives as well. He even writes about this experience in his second epistle. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so this morning we are going to look at three previews in the transfiguration. And the first preview we will look at is a preview of Christ's glory. Now there are sacred moments in scripture called theophanies. 
Theophanies are those moments in time when David Fisher in one of his sermons said that time and space are peeled back and eternity bursts through. It is a moment when any care in this world takes a deep back seat because you are in the glory of God. God is fully present. They are windows into his kingdoms. They are moments when he is fully revealed. And the deity of God is fully present. And when they happen, they transform the space into a holy one, a temple. And they happen at different moments through scripture. Some of the most popular ones are God's revelation to Moses on Sinai, the dedication of Solomon's temple, the incarnation of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, his resurrection. And here, standing between the baptism of Jesus and his resurrection is the transfiguration. It is in this moment that we see Jesus for who he really is. This is an unveiling of his divine nature. This wasn't a light that was cast upon him as if the Father was just shining a spotlight on Jesus, but one that was coming from the inside out. Joel Green writes that Luke's point is not that Jesus experienced some sort of internal adjustment of some sort that led to his transformed appearance, but that his inner being was made transparent to those who accompanied him. This transformation wasn't for the sake of Jesus, but for the disciples. Jesus already knew who he was, but here the disciples get to see the divine nature burst through. Another commentator writes, It is in the transfiguration story that Christ lifted the curtain of his humanity and revealed his divinity. The word of God who accepted to unite with human nature showed to Peter, John, and James that he was not only the son of Mary, born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, but that he was the pre-eternal God. This revelation of the divinity of Christ reminds us that the gospel is not the story of a man, but the story of God who became human while never ceasing to be God. And as we read in our Exodus passage a few moments ago, we see that Moses only reflected, radiated God's glory. But Luke wants us to see that Jesus' light comes from within. His appearance changed. His clothes became brilliant and white because of the light, the glory that was coming from him. And this light had a profound impact in the life of John. And even though John does not mention the transfiguration in his gospel, he frequently talks about light and the movement from darkness to light. He even writes in the very first uh, verses of his gospel that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and, that, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here in the transfiguration is Jesus in all of his glory. The light coming from within. And the evangelist puts a lot of emphasis here on sight in our passage. And he wants us as his followers to get a picture of who Jesus really is. He doesn't want his readers just to know about the divine nature of Jesus, but he wants us to see Jesus. Luke wants us in our mind's eye to picture Jesus on the mountain in glory. 
He constantly uses imagery of sight as he says, as he talks about his appearance being altered. He says, look, they appeared in glory. They saw his glory. And for the first time, the inner three disciples get to see the divine nature of Jesus on full display. This Jesus is not just some worker of miracles or good teacher, but God himself. There are moments in life where words are really insufficient. In 2017, Jessica and I got a chance to go on a real vacation. Our first real vacation since having kids. My parents took our kids for the week, and we, got to, we went out to the West Coast, and we went to the Yosemite Valley. And I just remember time after time again, everywhere you looked, it's just awe moments, just incredible beauty, cascading waterfalls, lush greenery, beautiful granite peaks. It's like everywhere you looked was a postcard, and you just, words were insufficient to, to capture it, to describe it. Or perhaps at the birth of a child, what do you say? How do you put into words all the pride and love you feel for this new being? Sometimes the best thing we can do is just be silent and take in the moment. And a little bit we'll see that Peter had a hard time doing that. Because when we see, when we picture Jesus in his glory, when we see who he really is, words become insufficient. And perhaps the only right words to say are holy, holy, holy. As we recall the words of the prophet Isaiah and John in Revelation. Sometimes we speak the most by just being silent, by falling flat on our face in front of a holy God, by letting the weight of the moment sink into our souls. And Luke wants this moment, this time, to sink deep into our souls. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth I will be exalted among the nations. And here Jesus is exalted. Be still and know that he is God. When we walk through hardship, sometimes the best thing we can do is remind ourselves of the God that we serve. Having a picture of Jesus in glory. When I'm having a bad day, like a really bad day, one of the things I try to do is remind myself is, is to do is to be still, to sit in God's presence, to rest there. Sometimes that looks on me laying flat on the floor in silence, just being mindful of God's presence with me and picturing Jesus in glory. Other times that looks like me just closing my eyes and taking deep breaths and being thankful for God's presence, the Holy Spirit in my life. But as we get to verse 31, we see Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And even in the middle of Jesus' revealed glory, they are talking about his death. In the middle of Jesus' glory, Jesus is centering on the cross. And we see that Jesus' glory is forever connected to his suffering. Which brings us to our second preview, a preview of Christ's suffering. And when we think of glory, we usually associate it with pride and power, charisma and wealth. 
And it is here that the cross turns earthly wisdom upside down. And glory is not given through triumph, but through death and sacrificial love. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. N.T. Wright says, There was a way of wisdom and a way of folly. Conventional wisdom said, of course, that the way of the Messiah would be the way of fulfillment and making ourselves powerful. But Jesus' most subversive teaching in both form and content consisted in just this. The way of wisdom meant taking up the cross, dying in order to live. The transfiguration transforms the understanding of glory, that Jesus' glory would come through his self-sacrificial love. The text says, as he's talking to Moses and Elijah, they are talking about his departure. But the word there is literally his exodus. And I wish we had the time to get into all the comparisons of what's happening here in the exodus story with Moses on Sinai. But here we see that Jesus was on a mission to fully and finally liberate God's people from bondage. That the path to true freedom would not come through the parting of the Red Sea, but would come through the blood of Jesus Christ. That transformation would come not through the law, but through faith and in following Jesus Christ. In verse 33 and following, it says, As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And Peter, seeing Jesus in all of his glory, he feels like he needs to say something. But we have come accustomed to Peter doing this. And the text right before this is that passage where Jesus was praying, and then he asked his disciples, who do you say that, I, say that I am? And it was Peter who belted out, you are the Christ. And then Jesus proceeded to tell them how the Messiah must suffer and die, to which Peter couldn't accept. And then Jesus looks at him and says, Satan, get behind me. And then following that, we see Jesus talking about what it, what it meant to follow the Messiah, that we, if we are to follow Jesus, must take up our cross and follow him. That we too must die in order to live. So what do we make of what Peter was trying to say? Why did Peter want to make these three tents? And when we go back, just as we said a moment ago, we see that Jesus, they heard Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah about his death, his departure. And some commentators suggest that Peter was once again trying to delay Jesus going to the cross. Trying to put that on hold. To stay in this moment forever. For Jesus to stay in this moment in his revealed glory. And once again we see Peter trying to remove suffering from Jesus' glory. But the two cannot be separated Jesus' glory is tied to his suffering. And from Genesis to Isaiah and the Gospels, we are told that the Messiah must suffer and die 
and be raised again. And we can be like Peter, that we want things a certain way. We don't like to be inconvenienced or unsettled. We like to grant forgiveness and love when it's convenient, when it fits in our box. Peter had a hard time accepting the Messiah would suffer. But can you blame him? How could this glorious one, Peter is seeing Jesus in his glory. How can God die? It doesn't make sense. How can the Messiah die? And we too must die to our, selflessness, to our selfishness, to our desire for revenge, to withhold forgiveness. We too must suffer and die to receive glory, to follow Christ. Paul probably says this best in Philippians 2. When he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name above every other name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see that the transfiguration offers us a message of hope shrouded in paradox. The glorious one, in order to receive glory, would walk a path that leads to suffering and death. The one whose glory is on display on this mountain would soon be displayed on a cross. The ones whose clothes are brilliant and white hairs, his, his clothes will soon be stripped from him and covered in blood. Thomas Torrance says, let us become like Christ since Christ became like us. Let us become divine for his sake, since for ours he became man. He assumed the worst that he might give us the better. He became that poor, uh, he became poor through poverty that we might be rich. He took the form of a servant that we might be exalted. He was tempted that we might conquer. He was dishonored that he might glorify us. He ascended that he might draw us to himself who were low in the fall of sin let us give all offer all to him who gave himself as a ransom and reconciliation for us Jesus's glory is forever connected to his suffering now let us turn our attention to our final preview a preview of our following so hopefully when you are following somebody, the person you are following knows the direction to where they are going. Not only do they know where the destination is, but they know how to get there. I know in my life some of the times I have been the most frustrated is when I've gotten bad directions. Or following somebody who says they know where they're going, but really have no idea where we're going. And as Christians, we can have confidence as we follow Jesus that he knows where he is leading us. And he knows the final 
destination. And he is leading us towards transformation. We are following Jesus towards our own transfiguration. And as Moses and Elijah also appeared in glory, we see that this is the glory that awaits the saints of the Lord. We see a picture of what God intended for humanity and the transfiguration some commentators suggest that we see what Adam looked like before the fall and what Jesus is restoring his saints to. And this was the hope of the transformation in Romans 8 when Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. When Matthew and Mark write about this account, they use the Greek word for our word metamorphosis to describe the transfiguration. But Luke just points, or Luke points us towards his appearance. And when we look at all three of these things, we need to remember that the divine light had always existed inside of Jesus and now it's being transformed. It is coming out of his very person. The invisible is being made visible. What was internal is now external. And this is the metamorphosis, the change that Paul uses when he talks about our own transformation in Jesus. In Romans 12, 2, when he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind. In 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is spirit. And Peter says it in his second epistle this way, This divine or his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness that through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. Jesus is leading us towards our own transformation. To become more like him. So how are we transformed? How is it that we can become more like him? By doing the thing we first see Jesus doing in our text. In verse 28 and 29, it says, They went up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. If we want to be transformed in the life of Christ to come through in our life, then we must be a people of prayer. Here in this passage, Jesus is praying before the transfiguration. In the moments before Peter's proclamation of who Christ is, Jesus is praying. And we are reminded of the importance of prayer 
and the work of God. And Luke constantly reminds his readers throughout his gospel of the power and importance of prayer and the life of Jesus. Luke wants us to pray. And the more we pray, the more we become aware of God's presence in our life. The more we acknowledge his presence in our life, the more we will live into it. And so Luke wants us to pray. It is the foundation for our transformation in Christ. And then he also wants us to, as the Father says, listen to him. And in this scene, we have an incredible picture. On the mountain is Jesus, Elijah, Moses, Peter, James, and John, all surrounded by the cloud of glory, the Holy Spirit. Can you picture it? Can you see this image? And in this picture, we see the law, the prophets, the gospels, and the New Testament writings there in time. Can you imagine? In one space. And it is in that picture, and that time stamp, that the Father admonishes the Son. But not for the benefit of Jesus as he did in his baptism, but for the benefit of us, for the benefit of his disciples. As the Father says, listen to him. Jesus is elevated above all the rest. He is elevated above Moses and Elijah, for their words find their fulfillment and meaning in him. For he is the divine word. The church father Jerome said this, he says, Thus I saw Moses, thus I saw the prophets, that I might understand that they speak of Christ. They are gone now that I may not remain in the law and the prophets, but arrive through the law and the prophets at Christ. We don't have it in our account here, but in Matthew he ends it with this picture of, seeing, of Jesus going to his disciples after the cloud is gone and picking up his disciples. And then at the end of the passage, it says that they come down the mountain. Matthew 17, 7 says, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And we're reminded that our mountaintop experiences are not supposed to last. We are not supposed to stay stuck on the Mount of Transfiguration. But there on the Mount, we get the strength we need to follow Jesus back down the mountain. And we see a picture of this also early in Mark's Gospel where it says, Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. He called his disciples to him. And then they went down the mountain to go do ministry. But we don't go down the mountain alone. Jesus, Emmanuel, the Son of God, comes down the mountain with us, and we are not alone. And the text finishes saying that Jesus was found there alone. Moses was gone. Elijah was gone. The cloud had gone up. 
For what Jesus was going, what he came to do, he was going to have to finish on his own. He was going to do something Moses couldn't do. He was going to accomplish something Elijah could not do. Jesus was the only one who could accomplish our redemption. And so if we want to be transformed, if we want the life of Christ to live through us, then we need to pray. We need to listen to him. And sometimes we need a correct picture of Christ in our mind's eye to endure hardship, to walk through this life. We need a picture of him in his glory as Luke directs us to look to him. Look at him. And it was this picture of Jesus in glory that gave Stephen the strength he needed as he was stoned to death. It was this picture of Christ and glory that gave Paul the strength he needed to endure the suffering on his missionary journeys. And when we walk through hardship, we should never lose sight of who Jesus is, the glorious one, God. And we remember that Jesus never lost sight of who he was, the core of his being, the divine Son of God. And we too should never lose sight of who we are as his followers. You are the beloved of God. You are a son and daughter of God. You are a brother and sister in Christ. And no matter what hardship we're going through, no matter how steep the mountain is, God is going to redeem your suffering and your hardship. For he takes your suffering and he uses it to make you more like him. Romans 8.17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The more we pray, the more we listen to him by loving God and loving our neighbor, the Holy Spirit starts to shine through our lives. The divine light starts to shine in our lives and transform our lives into the life of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul probably sums it up best in 2 Corinthians 3 as we think about this passage. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not uh, gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ, only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. The transfiguration offers to us three previews. A preview of Christ's glory which is the glory that we will one day share in with him. A preview of Christ's suffering where we are reminded that God uses our suffering for his glory and our transformation. And a preview of our following, that if we are a people who pray, who listen to him, then the divine light he has given us will start to shine brighter and brighter through our lives. Be encouraged today, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for our Savior Jesus Christ is Lord, and He is in glory, waiting for you, His saints, to join Him in glory. But in the meantime, let Him do His transforming work inside of you, inside of your life, that His divine light may shine in your hearts and give light and life to our world. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this moment in time. Lord, where you were transfigured, where you let your divine light shine through to give us the hope we would need. Lord, to come down the mountain with you. To be light and life and the darkness. Lord, let our light shine among men. Lord, even in this hardship, we pray that you would redeem our suffering. You would use it to conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, let your light shine through us, Lord. Lord, that you may receive glory, honor, power, and majesty. We pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.